Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Snafu. Please visit our website and our Patreon page for bonus content such as pictures and profiles of all the characters mentioned in today's episode, maps of the airfield, Q&A episodes, and much, much more. This podcast contains explicit content that may not be suitable for some audience members. Listener's discretion is advised. Bird in hand was full of airmen who wanted nothing more but to forget the brutal mission to Bremen that had just concluded just five hours earlier. Among them were Tommy, Willie, and Marshy, who all three were somberly pouring themselves drink after drink from a bottle of Irish whiskey that they had bought when they had arrived. The bottle was nearly empty. The ashtray that sat in the middle of the table was full, and barely a laugh or chuckle was heard from the three boys. Unlike most evenings, Tommy and Willie didn't bother reaching out and meeting up with Betty or Patty before heading out to their favorite spot for understandable reasons. They didn't want to be in the company of people who needed an explanation for their moods and behaviors. The company of one another was about the only thing that they had currently to bring them comfort. Outside the pub, Mills and Muth were walking down the main road through Great Rathing on their way to Burdenhand in order to keep watch over his three crew members. Mills had come to like Muth and found that they both had the same values and worldviews. The mission of Bremen and the aftermath of it just cemented that. While Muth wasn't grieving like the others, he was disturbed by the destruction that he became a witness to while flying the mission. Seeing fortresses filled with ten men just like him, with hopes and aspirations and convictions, trapped as they fell towards Earth, put a knot in his stomach, and haunted his psyche. Arriving at the infamous Y in the road that led to Dear Jesus Alley, or to Burdenhand, Mills was reminded of he and Skimpy's memories here. He could still see Evelyn's face, and he could still hear her voice. It was the closest thing that he had ever felt to a, quote, summer romance. While he never talked about Evelyn and wouldn't know what to do if he ever saw her again, he would be lying if he said that he didn't miss her with every moment that passed by. After Mills passed by the intersection and finally arrived at Burdenhand, he was met by a familiar face in the front lot of the pub. Standing next to the door, illuminated by the small amount of light still beaming from behind the horizon, was none other than Emma. Seeing Mills's face, Emma stopped in her tracks. With her were three other women. None of them were her cousin Evelyn. All three of her friends eyeballed the two airmen, with one of them giving flirty eyes to Muth, who subtly raised his hand and played with his wedding ring. Emma? Mills, what... I'm, I'm sorry. Emma shuddered and stammered. For what? You're about to just go in and check up on Tommy, Willie, and our new crew member. What are you here for? Emma looked over at her three friends, who looked utterly confused. She then asked her friends to go in without her, and Mills proceeded to do the same with Muth. Muth, knowing that there was something going on outside of his understanding, didn't question it but entered into the pub and went over to sit down with his three crew members. After Muth and the three women were gone and the door closed, 
Emma answered Mills' question. She took a deep breath in and said, I'm, I'm meeting someone here. Another airman? Mills' question hit a nerve with Emma, who fired back with, No, he's in the army. Mills gave a short chuckle with Emma's answer. I am not a whore. Emma fired again. Whatever you say. No, listen. Charlie was the only man I was ever intimate with. He was my first and I acted like an idiot. I thought he wasn't coming back and I acted irrationally. Is he here with you now? Can you give him something for me? I don't have it with me at the moment, but um, it's it's a letter of apology. I, I just gotta go back to my house and he's gone, Emma. Mills interrupted. Emma's face froze as she processed the information. What? She asked. Skimpy. Charlie's... He's gone. He was killed three weeks ago. Mills clarified, this time with his eyes starting to well up with tears as he began getting mental flashes of Skimpy's body laying in the radio room. Emma's eyes also welled up with tears, and one ran down her face as she looked off into the distance. The two stood in silence for a few moments until Emma softly said, It's not like my cousin Mills. I loved him. I wanted to make a future with him. It's not like Evelyn, huh? You know, you mean she never loved me? Mills questioned as he tried to fight back tears. I don't know. It's, it's not what I meant. She just... After that night that you caught her with that other man, she decided to move back to London, and since then she's been quite promiscuous. I see. Well, I hope she's happy, you know? She's not. She won't be for a while, but you're the one who deserves to find happiness, Mills. A single tear ran down Mills' cheek, which only made Emma tear up more. The two wiped their eyes before saying goodbye to one another as they entered into the pub and sat at their own tables. As Mills sat down with Willie, Tommy, Muth, and Marshy, Willie glanced up and saw Emma sitting down with her three friends. What the fuck is that? Emma? Yeah, it is. Mills replied. Emma? Like the Emma? Tommy asked. As Marshy and Muth tried to question who Emma was, all their efforts were ignored as Mills, Tommy, and Willie held their own conversation. What is she doing here? Is that who you were talking to? Tommy asked. Yeah, she, um, she's here to meet someone. She didn't know that, uh, or she didn't know, you know. Mills attempted to say it, but he didn't want to tear up again. Well, that doesn't make any fucking difference. It's not like if he was still here that they would be together again. For Christ's sake, that night in London, at the club, Skippy saw that bitch and her fucking cousin dancing with two other G.I.s. Nothing would have changed, Willie commented. Wait, what? Mills questioned. Oh, that's right. He never told you, and I never told you. Yeah, he, he saw them, and he didn't tell you because he didn't want to ruin your night. Mills sat in his chair in disbelief. Throughout the rest of the night, he contemplated what would have happened that night if Skimpy and Emma had ran into one another and Emma had apologized to him face to face. However, every time he ran the scenarios in his mind, it only plunged him deeper into a depressive state because no matter how Mills replayed it or imagined it, every scenario 
still ended up with his friend being dead. Three days later, May 14th, 1944, United States Army Air Force Station 186, Thurlow, England, 0700. Jack arose from his bed with every inch of his body aching and throbbing. His muscles were severely dehydrated, his joints were inflamed, and his mind was more fogged up than the English countryside before the sun arises. Looking around the hut, everyone around him was feeling the same way. O'Brien sat on the edge of his bed with a bucket between his feet, waiting for his body to purge the poison that he had consumed the night before. Brolin attempted to get back up out of his bed, but quickly fell back in it as the room was still spinning too much for him to stand up. Coca and Sheila hadn't even attempted to get out of bed. At first, Jack thought that they were still asleep, but looking closer, he could see that their eyes were opened and they were both staring off into the distance with a thousand-yard stare that had become almost commonplace around the base. Looking over at members of his own crew, Sal was lying on his back, arms crossed over his face. His eyes squinted because even the little bit of sunlight was causing his headache to become more intense. Timothy, on the other hand, didn't seem to have any indication of being hungover, although he did drink the night before. In fact, the last thing that Jack remembered before waking up was him watching Timothy ask a Red Cross girl to join him for a dance while in a pub with no music playing. While the event was funny and out of character for Timothy, in reality, Timothy was struggling with how to cope with the guilt that he had boiling up within him. After the bombs were released, Timothy hadn't thought of the consequences of taking the formation down to a low altitude in order to ensure accurate bombing. That was, until the formation was over the English Channel and they were out of the range of flak and fighters. Because once the danger flew away and boredom settled in, the long trek home Timothy's mind began to plague him. All throughout the flight home, Timothy thought about the amount of fortresses that were shot down because of his altitude change. How many fathers, sons, or brothers wouldn't be returning home because of his altitude change? Another thought that began to plague him was if all of his efforts resulted in accurate bombing. If he had missed the target, then his efforts and the sacrifices made would be for nothing and his future would be forever affected. 
In order for Timothy to keep his mind occupied, he was sitting up in his bed polishing his shoes with the look of care and precision on his face. Through the discomfort and headache, Jack commented, What are you shining your shoes for? Got yourself a date tonight? No, I just want to look nice, Timothy replied back. Eh, didn't I see you get close to a girl last night? Asked O'Brien. I just asked her for a dance. I wouldn't say that was close. Pal, don't lie to me. I may have, uh, uh I may have out drank a fish last night, but the memories I do have of last night are vivid. You were trying to hit the target. O'Brien joked. Hit the target? What are you talking about? I just asked her for a dance. With no music playing. Come on. You mean to tell me you weren't trying to score? Score? We didn't even kiss. Timothy. You know what? I'm going to call you Timmy, okay? Timmy, you were 100%. You know what? Let's just say this. If you were right and you're telling us the truth, then after she shot you down but allowed you to drink with her, I think all of us can agree that you looked like you were using your body to demonstrate to her what tight formation looks like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. By the way, how tight was her formation, Timothy? Sheila asked with his face mostly smushed into his pillow. I told you, we didn't even kiss. We had... One drank with her friends and she left. She was percolating for you, Timothy. Percolating, like a teapot. And you let her slip away, you should be ashamed of yourself, O'Brien commented, with a smile appearing on his face. You know, not all women on this earth are for procreating. Yeah, we know that. But when the fish are biting, you don't waste a cast. Brolin fired off. Brolin, I know you're a philosophy guy and all, but that was a stupid fucking way to put it. Coca fired off much of the chuckle of Brolin and Sheila. As the men giggled at Brolin and Timothy's expenses, that's when the front door of the hut opened up and the boss walked in. Timothy was the only person who stood up and stood at attention. After seeing nobody acknowledging him as he walked in, the boss looked around his former hut with a look of pure disgust and remarked, Lieutenant Winger, I need you to get cleaned up, dressed, and in my office at Stabber Manor by 800 hours. Understood? Yes. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I'll be there, sir. Good. And uh, until I get back, you boys better clean this place up. Smells awful in here. I don't know how you guys can stand it. You know, you're lucky one of the CQs hasn't reported you all yet. Roland gave the boss the thumbs up. Other than that, the boss received no response. Instead of fighting with them on this issue, he figured natural consequences would serve them better, so he didn't engage in the disrespect and clarified once more with Timothy as to what was needed of him. After Timothy nodded his head and once again gave verbal confirmation that he knew what time he needed to meet the boss, the boss turned around and exited the hut. About 45 minutes later, over on the other side of the airfield, the enlisted men of the bull had slowly woken up and were now getting ready to head to the mess hall for a last call for breakfast. The previous night, the men were all allowed to go into town, and every single one of them took the advantage of the trip. Willie and Tommy both met up with their dates for the first time since the mission to Bremen. While Betty was very understanding and even sympathetic to Tommy's decision not to include her in his immediate grieving processes, Patty wasn't as understanding and even took offense to it. And before Tommy knew it, Betty went looking for her friend and told Tommy that she'd be in touch with them soon. After nearly three hours had passed, both girls met back up with Tommy and Willie, 
and the two couples, along with the rest of Lord of Bull, went pub hopping and lived the night to the fullest. In the aftermath of that, both Willie and Tommy woke up with women's lipstick smeared on their cheeks and neck and heads full of beautiful memories. As Willie finished getting ready, he threw on his A2 leather bomber jacket and began looking for his box of matches that he liked to use to light up his cigars and cigarettes. Not being able to locate it, he asked Tommy if he remembered the last time Willie used the matches and where he might have put them. Tommy suggested Willie check his pants from the previous night, but Willie clarified that he had already emptied his pants and shirt from the night before and didn't see them. That's when Willie realized that he never checked his formal jacket. Going over to where he hung up his clothes, he checked the interior pocket. Instead of finding his box of matches, he found something very surprising. Pulling the item out for everyone to see, Willie proudly held up a pair of women's red underwear. Tommy asked, Whoa, are those yours? No, you fuckface. These are Patty's. Remember she was wearing that red outfit last night? Well, I I hope this is hers. What are you doing with those in your pocket, Willie? Asked Mills, whose face was cracking with a smile. Well, she was wearing my jacket for most of the night because she said that she was cold. But uh, after we did the dirty, she must have slipped these in uh, before giving me the jacket back. And since I never put the damn thing back on, I just didn't notice. Wait, you got messy last night? When? Me and Betty were with you for almost the entire night, Tommy questioned. Yeah, almost is the key. Well, the only time we weren't with you was when, um, oh, no. Yep, that shit, buddy. Come on, say it. Was, was was when I was waiting for Betty to return from using the lavatory. You you sick fuck. Oh, wait, 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 hold on. What's going on? What did I miss? Asked Marshy, who's about to light up a cigarette. Before we met up with you gents at the pub last night, the one with the wooden mugs, I forget what it's called, we were just around the corner, and the ladies had to use the lavatory. Bathrooms, Tommy. Stop trying to sound smart, Willie interrupted. The lavatory, or the bathroom. Whatever. Anyways, the girls find one, and Patty is done first. Willie and Patty are standing on the corner of the building by the alleyway. I'm waiting for Betty to come out, and I start to feel the urge to go, so I end up going behind the building to piss. So I tell Willie that if Betty comes out looking for me, to tell her that I'm using the men's room. This fucking says okay. So I go through the alleyway towards the back of the building, and when I come out... Betty is waiting for me outside by herself, and there's no fucking sign of either Willie or Patty. So we started heading to the next pub, and we weren't there for longer than, what, three minutes before Willie and Patty joined us, looking like nothing ever happened. That means that you two were bumping skins in the alleyway on the other side of the building with me pissing less than four feet away from you guys, and she had no idea, and I had no idea. And let's keep it that way, Willie interjected. Wait a minute. That means the entire time we were at the pub, your girl had no panties on. Marshy questioned, pointing at Willie. No, sure, Willie affirmed. I guess the old saying is true. Catholic girls are all the wildest. Mills fired back. Yes, they are. And the Brits, Protestant or Catholic, these broads don't give a fuck. I love this goddamn country, Willie furthered. Oh, jeez, in that case, I better get myself a girl soon, called out Marshy.
Oh, you'll get there, bub. Trust me. Learn from the master. Yeah, the masturbator. Poked Mooth, much to the amusement of Tommy and the others. Hey, that was a good one, Mooth. Good job. Real funny. Willie replied before the men all finished getting ready and headed to the mess hall. Do you want to get more out of Snafu? Well, guess what? There's good news for you because you can. You see, by visiting our website, www.snafupod.net, you can find all kinds of amazing free, it's important, free resources to help you find out more about the 8th Air Force in World War II and about the B-17 Flying Fortress. Right now, you can take a virtual tour of two real B-17s like the ones depicted in Snafu. Also, you can find links to movies, documentaries, and free YouTube videos, and much, much, much more. All you have to do is visit www.snafupod.net and check it out for yourself. Now, back to the podcast. Timothy arrived at the boss's office before the boss himself had arrived. The room was quiet and oddly dark, even though the burning morning light was still beaming through the paned windows. After standing and waiting for the boss to arrive for over 15 minutes, the boss finally popped his head in and told Timothy to follow him, which he did. Aimlessly following the boss out of High Brass Hall, Timothy wondered where the boss was taking him. Before he knew it, Timothy arrived at a covered military jeep and was told by the boss to get in. Upon getting in the passenger seat of the jeep, Timothy asked the boss where he was going. The boss simply responded that he had something to show Timothy, and he'd get back by evening mess. Jack had cleaned himself up, gotten dressed, and was now with Sal, Brolin, O'Brien, Coca, Sheila, Leslie, Eris, and Moose over by the field. The sky above them was gray, the temperature was in the low 70s, and it was accompanied by a nice breeze. Leslie, Eris, and Moose had just returned from an earned four-day trip to Scotland, awarded by Colonel Poole himself. The reason for the reward was due to the fact that the mission to Berlin, which was just over a week ago, would have been Leslie, Moose, and Eris' 25th mission, thus ending their tour. However, since the mission count had been raised to 30, they had to complete five more. Colonel Poole wanted to boost the morale of the seasoned crew, so we gifted them a nice long trip far away from any airfields. The group currently sat along the small grass slope that led up to the passing road. Looking down onto the baseball game that was being played in front of them, the group of men watched the game while listening to Leslie and the rest of Bob McGee's officers talk about their trip. As Leslie shared a story about a woman he met in Scotland, that's when Jack began thinking of a note that he had received from Marlene just two days earlier. The letter consisted of romantic sentiments of longing and excitement for Jack's return. A month ago, Jack would have immediately written her back, entertaining such wishful and positive thinking. Now, he couldn't muster up any ambition to respond to the letter or entertain her dreams and aspirations of his return. It seemed foolish for him to look to his woman back home for a source of hope and determination, especially in the light of Hill House and Benson's recent demise. With this thought, Jack began to wonder why he was holding on to any of his civil morals as methods of hope and perseverance at all. He was raised with the belief that everything was created by a creator, who had rules and standards that came out of a place of wisdom, love, and compassion. 
He was told at a young age that people are supposed to do the right and godly thing because if they didn't, the world would fall apart and God would seek justice on those who acted selfishly. However, since Jack's recent introduction to the world of war, that idea of a world built with order, morality, and purpose had become snuffed out. The world around him was more violent, sadistic, and evil than anything he was ever taught in Sunday school. Looking at the men like Leslie, Brolin, O'Brien, Coca, and even Sheila, these men were able to bounce back from the traumas of combat because they had no prior beliefs of the world being anything else but random and meaningless. They each saw a mission as nothing more than their job or duty, with no purpose, meaning, or higher calling. These men seemed liberated because of their lack of faith and beliefs, and in doing so, they had no problems coping with war in whatever way they saw fit, and they didn't even have to feel guilty for acting and being human. On the northern end of the airfield, near the tree line that covered the river, the men of Loda Bull were honing in on their targeting skills by shooting clay pigeons with a 10-gauge shotgun from the armory. At the moment, Willie held the shotgun in a downward, relaxed position and was now waiting for Muth to arrive at his spot with the clay pigeon for him to throw. Once he did, Willie called for Muth to throw the clay pigeon up in the air like a frisbee, which Muth did. Before the clay pigeon even made it halfway through the path that Muth had sent it on, Willie pulled the trigger and the clay pigeon exploded into a cloud of dust. Nice, Willie! Tommy exclaimed. Yes, it was. You see, boys, that's how men shoot. You act like you're a sharpshooter because you can hit a clay disc and because you shot down one fighter. What I want to talk about is how many planes have gone past your sights and you missed them. Muth commented. <laughs> He's got a point, Willie, affirmed Mills. Okay, Muth. Sure, you make a good point. But unfortunately, since you have yet to shoot one down yourself, you are unable to make such a statement. Oh, okay, then I'll say it. Beans joked. You can't. You can't say shit because you're still a virgin. Oh, what does that have to do with anything? Asked Beans. I don't know. Just irritates me. Oh, does everything have to be about women? I mean, how many have you slept with? I know it sounds like a real church boy thing of me, but there's more to life than putting your pecker in something. Beans remarked. Beans, what kind of question is that? Willie asked, handing the shotgun off to Mills. It's the question of a virgin who hasn't experienced a touch of someone other than his mom. Tommy jumped in. Leave him alone, guys. Come on. It's his morals. And to answer your question, Beans, yes, there is more to life than sleeping with some strange women, especially the women that he attracts, Mills said as he loaded the shotgun up and put it into Willie. What the fuck does that mean, Milch? Willie asked, stepping forward. I've got the shotgun, Willie. I'm kidding. Shotgun don't fucking matter to me. I get shot out for a living, remember? Ain't that the truth. A naked woman is about the only thing that makes the sound of engines and guns go away, at least for a little bit, Tommy remarked. Tommy, shut up, fired off Mills before yelling out, Pull! And just like Willie, the clay pigeon burst into a dusty mess and fell towards Earth. It wasn't a clean hit, joked Willie, cracking a smile. Mills then handed off the shotgun to Marshy. You know, I've got to say, I used to think it was kind of, well, mushy and cliche for men to obsess over their dates and girls back home, but I get it now. It gives you some kick to fight and return home, 
Tommy added. That's the wrong mindset to have, Mills commented. Why is that? Well, there's never a guarantee that you'll ever come back, you know? I don't have to tell you that, but, you know, you, you can't be up there with your aspirations to get you to come back. Those aspirations get in the way of your focus. You have to almost expect that you're not coming home in order for you to be in the right mindset, explained Mills. But then how can you enjoy anything when you're not fighting? Marshy asked. We're not here to enjoy anything. We're here to kill Germans and do our jobs. Everything else is just a distraction. The boys all stared in silence as they absorbed Mills' bleak statement. And even Mills wondered if he was capable of living out what he had just taught. Timothy was sitting in the passenger seat of the Jeep and had been waiting to find out where he was going for the last hour and 25 minutes. However, he noticed that the boss, who kept silent for the entire trip, parked up as they arrived at the road that led to the town of Dartford, which was on the east side of London and the south bank of the River Thames. Wanting to know why he was outside London, Timothy bothered asking the boss one last time what his intentions were. The boss glanced over at Timothy, and as he aimed his face forward again, he remarked, I want to put an image in your mind. What kind of image, sir, may I ask? You'll see, Lieutenant. Soon, the boss arrived at the south end of the town, and Timothy was astonished at what he was seeing. Smack dab in the middle of what once was a neighborhood was a crater and a pile of rubble that surrounded it. On the outer edge of the crater were about a half dozen houses that were completely blown apart, enough that Timothy could see open rooms and furniture spilling out from where the buildings had crumbled. Houses that were split in half had windows blown out, and some even had fire damage. Smoke billowed from the crater, and beneath the smoke were small clusters of fire that was still burning from the rubble. Looking to the boss as he shut off the jeep, Timothy asked him, Why did you take me here? Last night, an unarmed bomb was sent from somewhere in France. It was aimed for London, but missed. And well, it caused what you're seeing. Now... We're here to help clean up. But why us? Because, Lieutenant, this wouldn't have happened if we would have done our jobs. You see, things like this are a result of the Nazis. And our job is to destroy them and their war machine. And every time we miss the target, it gives the enemy another day to do something like this. But I'm confused, sir. We haven't had to bomb pilotless bombs. Unless the target we were set to bomb the other day was a factory that makes these... If so, I wasn't aware of that. You're missing the point, Lieutenant. The target you bombed was a success. Colonel Poole is very happy with the bombing results. However, the 8th as a whole has been sent to bomb such special weapon sites that make these things. And we've missed them or we've picked another high priority target. We are part of the 8th and therefore, even if it wasn't us who missed the target, we are Americans. We need to take responsibility. Besides... Since you have done a good job bombing, you can expect to be selected to lead the formation again in the future, and I want you to see what happens whenever we miss targets. I want you to remember what you see here today when you're zeroing in on the target. I want you to see what the enemy is doing to us and is capable of. Does that make sense, Lieutenant? Timothy was still confused and wondered if there was another reason why the boss had brought him here and he wasn't letting him know. However... Not wanting to piss the boss off, he replied, Yes, sir. Good. Now, let's face the consequences. 
the boss said, getting out of the Jeep. Do you want to get more out of Snafu? Well, guess what? There's good news for you because you can. You see, by becoming a supporter of the podcast, you will receive bonus content such as pictures and profiles of all the characters mentioned in today's episode, pictures and maps of the airfield and surrounding areas, as well as formation breakdowns of past, present, and future missions, and Q&A episodes. There is so much for you to gain by donating $3 or $10 to help support the podcast. If you would like to be a part of Snafu each week, please visit our Patreon page. The link for that's down in the show notes. Any support goes a long way in helping the podcast to continue. Your contribution is making a huge difference. Now, back to the podcast. Later that afternoon at the Cock Inn, Jack was sitting at a table with Parnell, Tango, Bill Davies, and Leslie, who were all enjoying their pints of beer over conversation. As they talked, three familiar faces arrived at the table sitting behind Leslie. Jack, who was sitting across from Leslie, was able to see who it was. It was Kime and Talbot from Grey Thunder, and Richard Erickson from the new crew, Bitter Boy, that had three confirmed kills the mission before. Jack hadn't talked to Kaim or Talbot since the night that Jack announced his lack of faith in God, and he was curious if their faith had been affected by the horror that befell their crew on the mission to Bremen. Taking quick glances at the table, trying not to draw any attention to himself, Jack caught a glimpse of Erickson and wondered if the rumors about him were true. The talk among Jack's group of friends was that Lieutenant Erickson was an odd character, and having a conversation with the individual was like an experience to savor. His eyes always looked glazed over, and he also wore a big cheesy smile on his face at all times, and had a long draw to his voice that made those who talked to him feel like he was a doper. However, along with the reputation of oddity, there was something else that he quickly became known for, his brain. The man was brilliant. He went to Dartmouth and graduated top of his class, and while he could have been a mathematician or something grand or more ivory tower suited for his intelligence, he went to school for teaching and worked as a high school history teacher before he was called up the week before his 25th birthday, which would have disqualified him from the draft. Another fascinating thing about Erickson was, prior to joining the Army Air Corps, he had already had his pilot's license that he had acquired before he was even able to drive a car. That qualified him to be the perfect man to fly fortresses, and everyone believed that if he hadn't had that license, he would have easily been made into an intelligence officer or something because of his knowledge. What interested Jack in this moment more than anything was why Erickson was sitting with Kaim and Talbot of all people. These two were zealots and good old boys that many of the men found to be too bubblegum or too preachy. While Erickson seemed and sounded like a nice guy, even a jolly guy, he also was very learned and an educated man. What would he have to gain from these two religious zealots? Perhaps these two pilots had faced enough hell so close to the heavens that they second-guessed their zeal and gusto for their untested belief. Just as Jack was about to look away from his quick glances over at the three men, that's when Kime's round, guiltless eyes met Jack, and even though Jack quickly looked away, he knew that Kime had seen Jack, and he knew that it was only a matter of time before one of them would say something to him. And sure enough, even though Jack tried to look engaged, listening to Parnell's childhood story, Kime leaned over to Talbot and whispered something to him, and soon, 
Talbot looked right at Jack and began waving his hand, trying to catch Jack's attention. The gesture was so distracting that Parnell and Leslie noticed and nudged Jack. Jack tried to act like he didn't know why they nudged him, but once Parnell pointed in Talbot's direction, Jack had no choice but to acknowledge the three men. Well, hey, guys, Jack called out to Talbot, trying to sound generally happy to see them. Judging by the look that Tango and Parnell were giving Jack, Jack knew that he had oversold his reaction. Well, how are we doing, gentlemen? Erickson asked the group. We're very good, sir. Enjoying a drink. Yourself? Parnell asked. Oh, we'll be getting a drink here pretty soon. Before you go on with the rest of your day, I just want to say that it was a pleasure flying with you guys on Thursday. It was a tough one, but you guys did a good job leading the way, Lieutenant Parnell, Lieutenant Miller. Erickson responded. Jack was frozen with the kind words, and once realizing Jack wasn't going to respond, Parnell spoke up and said, The pleasure was ours. That was your first mission, no? It was. Well, you guys did a good job for your first time. You know what? Why don't you gentlemen join us? Offered Parnell, to which Jack and Tango quickly shot looks of shock at Parnell. Jack then kicked Parnell's foot under the table, to which Parnell grabbed Jack's knee and squeezed it tightly, causing Jack to hold his breath and jolt into the table, all while Parnell kept close eye contact and a perfect composure with the three pilots. Well, that sounds amazing. Can we squeeze in? Erickson asked. Of course. In fact, why don't you guys just put these tables together? Make our own room. That's the Boston way to do it, after all. Is it now? Tango sarcastically asked, knowing full well how awkward this was going to be for Jack. It is, Parnell said. As the three men got up along with Tango and Bill Davies and began the process of moving the tables together where Tango and Bill were just sitting, Jack leaned over to Parnell and said behind his gritted teeth, What the fuck are you doing? I'm making friends. Stop being a prick, Parnell said, letting go of Jack's knee as he attempted to move the tables together while Jack sat sulking. Timothy was more than horrified at what he had seen over the last five hours. He was beyond physically exhausted as he had helped carry the crushed bodies of two people who were killed when a bomb caused their house to collapse on them as they slept. Along with that, Timothy had found the remains of the family's pet dog, who was thought to have survived the collapse and escaped into the night. Since the bodies of that residence had been discovered and carried off to be properly buried, the group of eight local men, all veterans of the Great War, who were helping along with Timothy started searching for the bodies of the family next door. As Timothy wiped the sweat from his forehead for the millionth time, he looked over at the boss, who at the moment was taking another break by talking to a local elderly woman in the street. What he was talking about with her, Timothy couldn't even imagine. The boss barely had any dirt on his pants or leather jacket, and his officer's hat was still clean and pristine. Meanwhile, Timothy's shirt was soaked from sweat, his hands were black, and he knew for a fact that his shoes were ruined, as they were so scuffed up that no amount of shoe polish could return them back to their formal shine. Trying to get all of this out of his mind and focus on his search efforts, Timothy looked downward and began moving rubble out from underneath him. The outer walls of the house were for the most part still standing, but a huge section of the side of the house, the side that was connected to the completely leveled house next door, had crumbled, and with it, 
became the entire center of the house and its roof. In the midst of Timothy's daydreaming, and then laser-like focus on clearing the rubble below him, Timothy had missed how many people they were supposed to be looking for. Not wanting to ask and get looks of death from the hardened British helpers, Timothy kept clearing debris. Soon, he saw what looked like human skin. Calling over for the men, they all rushed over and began moving the rubble. Within ten minutes, the rubble was moved, and what laid under the rubble was far more than what Timothy could handle. It was a crushed corpse of a ten-year-old boy, still dressed in his pajamas. Back at the pub, a group of officers were still conversating. Over the last two hours, the men had talked about everything from American baseball, football, music, movies, and even politics. So far, Jack was relieved at the fact that neither Talbot or Kime had brought up religion, and it seemed like Erickson was keeping the conversation away from the topic. That's when the topic of conversation had changed, when Erickson asked Leslie about how many missions he had left on his tour. Just five more, Leslie responded before finishing his glass of whiskey. Well, five? You, uh, you must be thrilled, Erickson retorted. Yeah, well, I'm not out of the woods just yet. Five might as well be 500. Well, now, surely you haven't had that mindset over the last 25 missions, Lieutenant. What's kept you going through the last 25? Jack internally chuckled at the manner of which Erickson had asked the question. Furthermore, Jack looked to Leslie and waited for his answer. After pondering it for some time, Leslie grabbed his pack of cigarettes, and as he grabbed a new cigarette to light it, he responded with, Well, my first five or so, I did it for my girl back home. The next five, I did it to come back to my girl here. And then five after that, I don't know. I just did it to be done. And then once Doolittle fucked me, I gave up on ever doing it for anyone or anything. But I did it because I was selected to do it and I had no other choice. Oh, what happened to your girl back home? If you don't mind me asking, Talbot asked. I'm sure she's given up on me ever coming home. Can't blame her. We haven't even wrote each other since February. Jack was watching Leslie's body language as he was becoming more uncomfortable with the questions. And uh, what happened to your girls here? Erickson asked. I think that's enough questions. Tango butted in, much to Jack's appreciation. After taking a puff off a cigarette, Leslie uttered back, I think they much rather prefer an officer with more spending cash and less vices. Oh, listen, pal, I, I didn't mean to, you know, somber you. I just... I like finding out what people look to for hope. Apologize, Erickson. I mean, it is what it is. You'll find out soon enough. These guys here, they got a taste on their last mission, didn't you? Said Leslie, looking in the direction of Talbot and Kime. Jack was astonished at Leslie's candor, and judging by their body languages, so was Parnell, Tango, and Bill Davies. While Kime kept quiet, he broke his silence by saying, It was a tough one. God humbled us, that's for sure. As Jack subtly rolled his eyes, Leslie took a puff off his cigarette and slouched in his chair and said, God humbled you, huh? Let me ask you this. You both seem like good church choir kids, and I hear you're both religious. What are you doing your missions for? Doing the Lord's work, are you? Well, I mean, you could say that. I wouldn't, but 
I, I, I believe that God has called me to do what I'm doing in this moment in history for a reason I may not understand, but I can trust that it's a good reason, answered Talbot. And why do you think that is? Asked Leslie. After taking a sip of his gin and tonic, Talbot replied with, I don't claim to know, but I can imagine it's to help those around me and my crew members through this very dark time. Well, you got that right. It is, in fact, dark. But, uh, you know, how do you, how do you plan on doing that? You just got your, you know, as you said, your crew just got humbled. And I've been there. Tell me, how do you exactly plan on helping them? How did you help them? Well, I mean, to be honest, I just assured them of the same thing I shared with Jack and these two gentlemen the other day when I said that the world is the closest to hell we'll ever be. And if we put our faith in God, and God alone, you know, we, we can assure ourselves that this world isn't all that there is. Is that true, Lieutenant? Leslie asked Kaim. Yep. We both share that before and after each mission, and we'll keep doing that over the next 28. That's if you ever see 28. Tango butted in. If isn't a factor, at least for us, Talbot said, pointing to himself along with Kaim and Erickson. He continued by saying, It's like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the book of Daniel. When they were going to be thrown into the fiery furnace, they said, Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us out of thine hand. But if not, let it be known unto thee that we will not serve thy gods or worship any golden image which thou hast cast up. In other words, our faith isn't that God can get us through 28 missions, but it's the fact that even if we don't make it through 28 missions, he is still God and the world to come, the world on the other side of death is worth all the suffering. Erickson, do you believe that? Bill Davies asked. Well, of course I do. I mean, in fact, it reminds me, we're just talking about this earlier today, in fact. It reminds me of something I once read in a book. You hear that, Jack? Books. That's right up your alley, Parnell said, nudging Jack. Are you a reader? Erickson asked. I do read, yeah? Jack cautiously affirmed. Yeah, you went to school for English, right? Talbot asked. Jack nodded his head and took a huge gulp of his ale. Well, that's amazing. Good for you. Have you ever heard of a book by uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky called The Brothers Karamazov? Jesus fucking Christ, what kind of name is that? Asked Leslie. It's a Russian name, and yeah, I've heard of him, Jack replied. Okay, well, in the book, uh, the character named Ivan says, and I can quote it because it's become a pillar of hope for me, but he says, I believe like a child that all suffering will be healed and made up for, that all of the humiliating absurdities of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage, like a, the despicable fabrication of the impotent and infinitely small mind of man that in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, for all the blood that they have shed, that it will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify all that has happened." After a moment of silence, Parnell commented with, Amen to that. 
It had been 20 minutes since the boss round Timothy up and began heading home. It had been close to an hour since the discovery of the boy, whose parents were still unaccounted for and assumed to be still under the rubble. The boss hadn't said anything to Timothy about what he had experienced and seen today. He didn't need to, for he could see in Timothy's eyes that he not only was affected by the carnage the Nazis had caused, but he even seemed vengeful, which is just what the boss hoped for. In reality, Timothy had become filled with anger as well as overall sadness over what he saw today. But what the boss did not expect was the fact that at any moment, a sudden realization had entered into Timothy's mind. The hell that he was a witness to today, that was just the result of one bomb that missed the target. He knew that on a mission, it was impossible for every American bomb to ever hit a single target, especially when there's 300 plus bombers in the sky on one single mission. No matter how he thought of it, or how he justified it, every single mission, he was inflicting the same destruction, or at least aiding in it. How many little boys or little girls had he killed on that mission to Bremen, even though the bombing accuracy was above average? How many men, women, children, and family pets had he or was even going to help aid in their deaths? Suddenly, as fast as he was filled with rage, he was now filled with an overwhelming sense of guilt, shame, and panic. At the end of the evening, as the men were making their way back to base, Jack was waiting for Parnell to cease his conversations with Erickson so he could talk to him. In the meantime, Jack walked with Leslie, Tango, and Bill Davies, who were all laughing at something Bill Davies had said in the aftermath of all the booze he had consumed rushed to his head. Finally, after seeing Erickson run up to conversate with the ever-so-sober Talbot and Kime, Jack moved in to talk to Parnell. Parnell, wait up. What, what, what the hell was that all about? What? Don't give me that. You being Mr. Invitation. Why did you have to invite Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to come sit with us? Oh, come on. Don't be a prick, Louie. What's wrong with them sitting with us? They're good guys. Plus, that Erickson guy, he's kind of a strange fella. You know, he's like an albino zebra. Do those even exist? No, well, I, I don't know. But what I know is, next time, read the room. Read the room? What the hell is your problem? What's so bad about them? I mean, you... You act like Ronnie when we forced him to sit with those with those engineers the other day. They're annoying. Come on, like, you have to see that. Well, you can be annoying, Louie. You don't hear anyone else complaining. I'm serious, Parnell. They're annoying to the point of being insufferable. If I had an hour left to live, I'd spend it with them because by the end of it, it would feel like a lifetime had passed. Why? Because they're religious? You didn't find anything that they were talking about the least bit fascinating? No, I was raised in church, Parnell. I heard enough of that shit growing up. I didn't come to England to hear more of it. Oh, quit being a fucking Mary about it. You could take that stick out of your ass and hit yourself over the head with it until you grow up. You mean to tell me that you can sit through Moose going on and on about comic books and not being annoyed by him? I mean, you, you mean to tell me that when Sal goes on about his neighborhood in Detroit, that you can handle that, but you'll throw a pissy fit over sharing drinks and conversating with a few religious guys. It's not that they're religious. It's that it's the fact that they're preaching and they act like judge and jury over what others do to find hope. 
Like, you mean to tell me that you're going to tell another man that he's destined for hell because he looks forward to fucking a beautiful woman to get his mind off the fact that he's going to die soon and never see his family again? Yeah, go fuck yourself then. At this, Parnell stopped walking and so did Jack. The two faced one another and Parnell said, Louie, I get it, okay? Trust me. You know what happened to me. You know what I've been through and what I've seen. If anyone was angry at God, it was me. And sometimes I still am. But but don't you see that you're literally doing the same thing by looking at them and judging them for doing what they need to do to keep their head up. Everyone has their ways of dealing with this shit and everyone thinks that it's the best way. It's more so than others. But at the end of the day, we're all trying to deal with it. Now stop being a prick. Is everything all right? Talbot asked as he, Erickson, and Kime began walking towards the two men. Yep, everything's fine. You see what you're doing? Said Jack. Listen, believe what you want to believe, Louis. Just don't be a cock about it. Parnell said before he began walking forward, eventually walking through the three men. Soon, Tango, Bill Davies, and Leslie were standing behind Jack, asking him what was going on. As Jack began walking forward, Jack looked at Erickson and said, You quoted Dostoevsky back there. And here's the thing. There's more to Ivan's speech. You missed the next line where he says, and I quote, But though all that may come to pass, I don't accept it, and I won't accept it. Jack was now inches from Erickson, and as Jack continued, his eyes slowly scanned the eyes of the three evangelists. Ivan wasn't making the case for God, you idiot. He was making the case against it. Because he, like me, am having a hard time looking up to and believing that there's a God up there. When that God has the power to stop evil and yet he doesn't and instead leaves us to deal with it. Either there is no God or if there is one, he's just as evil as the dickhead we're killing ourselves to try to stop. Next time you want to regurgitate something to make your point, quote the whole fucking thing. Don't cherry pick. Jack pushed through the three men and walked towards a very disappointed Parnell who had stopped walking to watch his bitter friend walk past him and continue on, leaving the others standing shocked with the exception of Leslie, whose face showed that he understood exactly what Jack was saying. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Snafu, a historical fiction podcast depicting the average life of a bomber crew in World War II. Please leave an honest review on whatever podcast app you're currently listening on. If you would like more information about the podcast, please visit our website and our Patreon page. Both links are down in the show notes. This podcast is produced by Canto 34 Studios, a DIY project that's helping to raise awareness to the brave young men who sacrificed their lives in the skies of Europe in World War II. I hope we can do it justice. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned next week for another episode of Season 2 of Snafu. Snafu.